0: Awesome. Thanks, Dr. Mays. Appreciate it so much. If you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 12. John chapter 12, we're continuing our verse-by-verse study through this incredible gospel, the gospel of John. And today, we're going to look at the words of Jesus when he says, my soul is troubled. So if you're taking notes, you feel free to follow along there with the outline in your bulletin. And we're going to be looking at John 12, 27 through 33. The apostle John writes these words. This is Jesus speaking. He says, now my soul is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning to learn what you want us to learn so that we can live like you want us to live. We pray that the Holy Spirit would enlighten our minds to allow us to understand these truths and that you would change us more into the image of Jesus Christ, that we would walk in your light this week based on what we've studied here in our time together this morning. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Jesus says, my soul is troubled. And so I wanna know from you this morning, have you ever been troubled? You ever been through a really tough time, a difficult day? You ever had uh, emotional turmoil? Have you ever experienced the pain of anticipating an unwanted experience? I kind of feel that way every time I go to the dentist. I don't know about you. But for an elementary school student, it could be troubling to know what to wear or how to tie your shoe or how to get your homework done. For a high school or college student, it could be difficult to write a research paper or to manage your schoolwork and your extracurricular activities, or not to stress out about whatever career path you're going to choose. Newlyweds may easily get stressed out when they start thinking about saving for a mortgage right here in Santa Clarita, right? How to grow your family and prioritize life. The singles can be troubled when they think about the challenges of being a single parent or the difficulty of fitting in or why maybe they never got married at all in the first place. As families approach their middle years, there are thoughts about saving for retirement, attempts to get everything done with the family and just trying to keep up with all the moving parts of life. As we get older, there are thoughts about updating your will or maintaining good health or leaving a legacy. No matter what stage of life you're in, no matter how old or young you are, we all sometimes can get overwhelmed with the cares of this world. And we could be thinking thoughts like, am I doing enough? Am I making enough? Am I prepared in my life for different things that may happen? And if you're honest and willing to admit that you have struggled with many of these same things and maybe even your soul is troubled right now. You're like, hey Adam, you're you're describing my life right now. I've had a very troubled week. There's been a difficult thing that I've been facing this week. And if you're troubled today, I have very good news for you, and the news is you're not alone. You're not the only one going through trouble. Jesus himself, as we see in this text, said, my soul is troubled. That's right, Jesus Christ, in all of his glorious perfection, in all of his miracle-working power, while fully human and fully divine, experienced trouble. So how did he work through it? How did he respond to adversity? How did he handle difficulty? Well, we can learn all of this and so much more today as we see Jesus going through his trouble. And as we examine how he went through his trouble, hopefully it will prepare us and aid us to better go through our own. And so in this message this morning, I want to give you three headings that we will examine about how Jesus dealt with trouble. You ready? Heading number one is the transparency of Jesus. And if you are taking notes, that first blank says Jesus was troubled. Verse 27, Jesus, again speaking, says, now my soul is troubled. Now is my soul troubled. And so here in the context of John chapter 12, we've learned a lot about how Jesus came from Bethany for a special dinner held in his honor. And after Mary had anointed the feet of Jesus with expensive perfume and wiped his feet with her hair, Jesus heads into Jerusalem at the triumphal entry. And as the crowd shouted, Hosanna! And they laid their garments on the path, some cutting down palm branches to lay their there, there lay out a, a roadway for Jesus to enter into, uh, into Jerusalem, the Passion Week was beginning. And during the Passion Week, Jesus cursed a fig tree that didn't bear any fruit, and he cleansed the temple. And then Jesus aptly announces that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And by this, he means that the Messiah, the Son of God, will be cut off, he will go to the cross, and he will accomplish the redemption of mankind. Last week, we looked at how in verse 24, Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We were also told that whoever loves his life loses it. But whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. True Christians must be willing to follow Jesus. They must be willing to lose everything in order to gain Christ true Christians serve their master and pursue time with Jesus through his word. Faithful followers will be honored by our Father up in heaven. As Jim Elliott said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And it's almost as if the reality of all this begins to settle into the heart and mind of Jesus. He realizes the actuality of about what's about to happen to him. We're just days away, maybe even hours before the crucifixion. And Jesus, at this point, says, now my soul is troubled. Now again, how how could this be? How could the healer be troubled? How could the Son of Man, who has promised everlasting dominion, be troubled? How could the wonderful Counselor face His own trouble? Yes, Jesus is God, but He is also man. He chose, out of His own accord, of His own free will, to humble Himself to become a human being and to die a death even on the cross. This word, troubled, comes from the original word terrasso, which literally means to stir. It means to shake. It means to agitate. In this context, the word refers to, to, to inward turmoil, to a deep disturbance. In other places, it's even translated as something terrifying or something horrific. The same word This word for troubled is used in John 5 verse 7 when the lame man was by the pool at Bethesda. And remember he used to talk about no one would pick him up and put him into the pool when it had been stirred, same word. The same word is also used in Luke 1.12 to describe Zechariah, the prophet who was the priest He was in the temple, right, and he sees the angel in the temple that's going to announce John the Baptist's birth, and he gets troubled when he sees this angel, and, and, and he's even afraid. Fear entered his heart. The same word, again, is used in Matthew 14.26 when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water. The Bible says they were terrified, and they said, it is a ghost, and they cried out in fear. And so we see this word troubled is used a lot in the Bible. A couple of times it uses, the, the, the Bible uses this word to describe Jesus's own emotion, what we're looking at right here. And then also we saw the same word used to describe Jesus when he watched Mary weep at Lazarus's tomb. Remember that? in John eleven thirty three, when Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. We also will see this word troubled used in the next chapter, John 13, verse 21, at the Last Supper, when Jesus was about to be betrayed by Lazarus. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And so, Adam, what what are you saying I'm saying that Jesus was troubled. And he wasn't troubled just one time. He was troubled at least three different times that we see in John 11, John 12, and John 13. He felt real pain and real hunger and real thirst. But he also felt emotion, not just the physicality of being a human being, but the emotionality of being a human being. He was even tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he was without sin. It is not a sin to be troubled. It is not a sin to be tempted. There is a fine line between concern and worry. There's a fine line between being nervous and being anxious. There's a fine line between disappointment and despair. And if we're not careful, any of our emotions could turn into sin if we're not expressing them appropriately with a biblical balance in mind. And my friends, we need that biblical balance. And this morning, we're going to find it in the person of Jesus Christ. You ask, well, what was it that Jesus was so troubled about? Well, I think Jesus was troubled about the fact the Pharisees were misleading Israel into false religion. I think he was troubled about the fact that Judas was about to betray him. I think that he was troubled about his soon coming death. But do you know what I think troubled him the most? I think what troubled Jesus the most was the thought of bearing the sin of the world upon his shoulders. I think he was troubled most about bearing the wrath of God on his body on the cross. I think he was troubled about being that sacrificial lamb. I think he was troubled about the separation that he would face when the Father would forsake him on the cross. Yes, I think Jesus had reason to be troubled, and that is not a sign of weakness. And it's not a sign of frailty, it is a reality. It shows us that Jesus was a real human being. Jesus felt troubled. Now how I believe that would encourage us today. If you're troubled and you're like, oh, Jesus was troubled, man, that's really encouraging because I know he's perfect and he's powerful and he's never sinned. But if he's troubled, it means it's not necessarily a sin for me to be troubled, but I want to look to Christ and learn from him what I can learn as he works through his trouble so that I also can work through my trouble. I feel intimately acquainted with the Lord Jesus Christ when I read text about the fact that he sweat drops of blood or that he was troubled or he shed a tear. I can identify so much more even with the intimacy of the relationship that we can have with the Lord Jesus. And not only was he troubled, but we see here your next blank says that he asked some honest questions. Again, verse 27, and what shall I say, Father, save me from this hour? Now, these two questions in the ESV are represented in the NASB as one question, but whether it's one or two, it's a, it's a, I believe it's a hypothetical situation. In other words, I believe Jesus is not really asking the Father to spare him from the cross. Jesus is not requesting a change of plans. Jesus is not attempting to forfeit his obedience to the Father's will. Rather, Jesus is just being honest about the fact that he could pray that way, but he's not. He could request an evacuation, but he doesn't. He could try and get out of it, but he's not, because in the very next sentence he says, But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. This is Jesus giving us a window into his two natures, divine and human, right? Fully God, fully man. Theologians call that the hypostatic union. This is Jesus being vulnerable about the fact that this is a tough time in his life. This is Jesus preaching to himself what he knows to be true. This is Jesus knowing and fulfilling the purpose by which he came, and yet it doesn't mean it's not hard, and it doesn't mean it's not difficult but it does mean that he will do his Father's will. That's why he's here. That's the purpose for which he came. He says in John six thirty eight, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me and so Jesus had already said that he was willing to die so that he can bear much fruit Jesus knows that this hour has come for the son of man to be glorified Jesus had already said in Luke 9 22 that the son of man man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised And so here in John 12, 27, I think Jesus is simply being honest about how, from a human perspective, this is a struggle, but he knows his purpose and he will fulfill it. And Jesus's purpose was to do the will of the father, to be the lamb of God. And so as we look at that being his purpose, maybe we might be tempted to ask the question, well, what's my purpose in trials? I mean, I know Jesus was troubled about going to the cross. He's going to accomplish redemption. But what's the big deal about my trial? Why do I have to go through trials? And I think that, that you've got to understand that there's a purpose for your trial as well. Just as there is a purpose in Jesus's trial, there's a purpose for your trial. And if you forget about the purpose of your trials, it makes it 10 times harder to get through them. If all you do is look at the trial and the difficulty and the pain, then it's really hard to get through. But if you look at the purpose of the trial and you learn what we're going to learn this morning from Jesus in the trial, and if you know what the purpose is, then it's going to help you. And namely, that purpose is that your trials are there to glorify God. They're there to strengthen your character. They're there to help you grow in your faith. That's Romans 5, verses 3 through 4, where Paul writes, not only that, but we also rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Well, there's one reason for your trial, whatever it is you're going through, physical, spiritual, emotional, that trial that God's allowing you to go through, that yes, he even ordains that you go through, is so that you can grow in endurance. So that over the course of your life, as you go through multiple trials, you can say, you know what, I've been in a hard place before. And my God always comes through. And as I'm going through the trials of my life, I'm getting stronger and stronger. And it's all of his grace. And as he's growing in us, this endurance, Romans 5, 4 says, and endurance produces character. So Now I'm becoming a godly man. Now I'm becoming a godly woman. I used to blow up when this would happen in anger. I used to be so fearful. I used to get depressed, but now when these things come into my life, I'm building that character that God's working in me, and this character, Romans 5, 4 says, produces hope. It makes me hope in heaven. It makes me hope for the return of Christ. It keeps me humble, realizing this world has nothing to offer. And so when we're reminded that the purpose of trials of suffering in this passage is to make you stronger, that trials are to strengthen your faith, that the trials that God brings into your life humble you and give you hope in Jesus, it helps you to move through those trials. And next we see, not only does Jesus give us a a very transparent look into his life by saying, I'm troubled, and he asks some of these hypothetical questions, we also see here, your next blank says, Jesus showed resolve and focus. He shows resolve and focus, the end of verse 27, where he says, but for this purpose, I have come to this hour, Father, glorify your name. Now, these verses, the end of 27 and 28, show the transparency of Jesus, and they show us the way he worked through this, and this ought to be a great encouragement to us. It's not as though Jesus would ever say to you in your time of trouble, I have no idea what you're talking about. Jesus would never say to you, suck it up, man. You're such a wimp. I think he would say, you know, what? I've been there. I know what your anxiety is all about because I've experienced those pressures. It's Hebrews 2.18, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. The Bible teaches us that Jesus knows what it's like to be tempted. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be in trouble. He knows what it's like to be rejected. He knows what it's like to experience pain, heartache, and death. And so these verses... I believe serve as a great template for prayer I mean do you want to know how to pray when you're facing great difficulty do you want to know how you ought to pray when you're discouraged do you want to know how to pray when you're going through a troubled time look to Jesus and look to his prayer as your example Jesus taught us how to pray in the Lord's prayer we also call it the disciples prayer We learn a lot about prayer in the Psalms. We learn a lot about prayer in Ephesians 1 and 3 and Philippians 3 from the prayers of Paul. But man, how about this prayer? This is a great place to go as a template to say, you know what, Jesus, teach me how to pray. I'm going to watch how Jesus prays. And in Jesus's prayer, he reminds us again that our suffering has a purpose, that our suffering was ordained by God, that our suffering is not in vain, that it is in our suffering that we find out how strong our faith really is. You know, I was telling you a little bit about Jim Elliott last week and about Nate Saint and the missionaries who gave their lives in Ecuador after preaching that sermon last Sunday morning. That night, we ended up watching uh, the, the End of the Spear. Maybe you remember that movie that came out 10 or so years ago about this very story. And so the little kids went on to bed. It's Lisa and I with Anna and Nate. And now uh, we're watching the movie The End of the Spear. And the kids' eyes are like this big, you know, as we see like them literally um, get to the point where they shove a spear through Jim Elliott's chest. And I'm kind of watching it on the screen, I'm looking at my kids and they're just like, <laughs> you know, it's like this horrifying, this horrific thing. And yet we're reminded that we, we don't really know how we're gonna respond until you're in that moment because earlier in the movie, it was the, uh, the little boy, Steve Saint, who's talking to his dad, Nate Saint, and he says, hey dad, you're taking a gun with you into the jungle, right? And the dad's like, yeah, we're taking a gun, but we're not going to shoot the Akka Indians because they're not ready to die. We're ready to die. We know Jesus. We can't kill them because then they're going to go to a lost eternity. And the son was kind of struggling with that answer, like, well, dad, I want you to protect yourself. And he said something like, well, we might fire it in the air and it maybe that will cause them to run. And sure enough, the day comes, they land on the beach, they try to make contact with the Indians. After a couple of days, it seemed to be going okay, and then all of a sudden, the warriors came and rushed into this open area by the river and speared these guys to death. And after the movie was over, I looked at my son, Nate, and I said, hey, Nate, you think you could do that? He's like, I don't know, man. (laughs) I'm like, I don't know either. You just really never know until you're in that moment. I mean, Peter acted like he was all that following Jesus, and then he runs like the Dickens when they come after him and says he didn't even know him. So the idea is we think that we could live up to it, but sometimes it's in those trials that God is growing us, and he's building in us that kind of character that we never really know until that very moment. And Jesus moves through his troubled heart, and he's open and honest about the difficulty of this hour, But then he moves to that most important part of the prayer, what we've got to learn this morning, which is simply this, where he says, Father, glorify your name. Like above everything else, I know I'm here for a purpose, and that purpose is to fill the mission for which you sent me. And God, I'm praying in it all that your name would be glorified. And this ought to remind us like, oh yeah, that's not about me. It's not about my comfort. It's not about everything going according to my plan. It's about the glory of God. It's about him being glorified. It's about him being exalted. And the prayer of Jesus during this Passion Week serves as a prelude to the prayer that he will pray in the garden of Gethsemane. I mean on Thursday night of this same week in Luke 22:42 we read about Jesus's prayer in the garden where he says, "Father, if you're willing remove this cup from me; nevertheless not my will but yours be done." I mean this is the kind of prayer we need to be praying. We we see openness In the life of Christ, we see honesty in the life of Christ. We see transparency in this prayer. Jesus is saying, Father, if there is another way, I'm open to it, but I know there's not. I will do your will. My will is to do your will, and I'm going to do what you've called me to do, and I want your name to be glorified. The Westminster Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? Answer to glorify God and enjoy him Forever. Everything we do is to glorify Him. John Piper, in his book Desiring God, asked a second question and said, Well, if the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, what's the chief end of God? Answer the same thing. The chief end of God is to glorify God and enjoy Himself forever. And the point that's being made in that is like, Hey, God is going to glorify Himself in the cross. God's gonna glorify himself in the resurrection, God's gonna glorify himself in everything that happens in your life because as God's glorifying God, you're gonna find your joy and your satisfaction and your confidence in him growing stronger. So your job is to glorify God God's job is to glorify God, and as all this is happening, then God's being exalted in a way that his glory is on display so that it can be more clearly seen, so that when you and I see the testimony of a Jim Elliot or a Nate Saint, we're like, you know what? Glory be to God. Like in that trial, in that difficult time, God's being glorified. Isn't that the, the whole purpose of life again? is that God would be glorified, and this means even in your troubles, I would say especially in your troubles. This is where God has your attention more than any other time. It's when you're troubled that you're the best student of prayer. It's when you're troubled that you learn and you're hungry to know exactly what God's word means when it says what it says because you're desperate, you're in great need, you're in great turmoil and you're pouring over the scripture and you're on your knees every morning and you're saying, God, we gotta have help. Maybe you've been through a time like that. Where there was a financial crisis, where you have a kid who was rebelling at home, where you had someone sick who was dying of cancer, and you're like, "God, I gotta have help, Lord. I'm just, I'm just gonna keep coming to you and keep asking you to be glorified in this situation." This is what God does. He brings us through those troubles and He brings us through those trials because it's in the crucible of life that your faith shines most brightly. It is in your suffering that your faith radiates with more luster. It is when you're weak that he makes you strong. It's in the midst of trials that your faith is purified. And so when you are troubled, let me encourage you this morning to remember Jesus's prayer and pray like he prayed. Don't be so quick to just ask for a way out. Ask for God to be glorified. Ask for God to teach you about his love for you and his perfect wisdom and what he's accomplishing in that situation in your difficulty for his glory. Can we ask for healing? Absolutely. Should we ask for a resolution to the conflict? Yes. Can we ask for God's protection and provision? You bet we can. But more important than all of this is to pray, Father, glorify your name. I want you to be glorified, God, whatever it costs, however difficult it may be. Father, glorify your name. That's your goal, and that's God's goal, both the same, to glorify the name of God in heaven, and so we see the transparency of Jesus here in this text, but we also see here the voice of God. That's our second heading, the voice of God, and your first blank under that heading says, God answers prayer, He answers prayer. I mean, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Man, I got to be honest with you. I wish God answered my prayers that quickly and that audibly, right? I mean, God immediately answers his son's prayer. This fact is undeniable as we read that there was a voice from heaven. Let's make no mistake about it. This is a clear voice. This is an audible voice. This is an authoritative voice. There are three times that we read about a voice from heaven speaking into the New Testament time. All three of those in the life of Jesus, the voice of God. One happened at the beginning of Jesus's ministry. One happened in the middle of his ministry. And then this one happens at the end of his ministry. The first time was at Jesus's baptism. And in Matthew chapter three, verse 16 and 17, it says Jesus was baptized and the heavens were opened up. And he saw the spirit of God descending like a dove and behold, a voice From heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is one of the most powerful displays of the Holy Trinity. In the scripture, you have God the Son being baptized, God the Holy Spirit descending like a dove, and God the Father making it clear that this is his son, and he's pleased with his son. We hear the the voice of God the second time in the New Testament On the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus went up on this mountain with Peter, James, and John. There they saw Jesus transfigured before them. And the Bible says that his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became dazzling white. And there was Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And Peter was so excited, he didn't know what to say. And so he suggested that three tents be made, one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. The picture of the law, Moses, and the prophets, Elijah, and Jesus. And so Peter's like, let's make this tent. And while he was still speaking, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. A voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. In other words, God is saying not about the law and the prophets. Those people, Moses and Elijah, point to Christ. Now Christ is here. Listen to Christ. Don't be too distracted by making a tent for Moses and Elijah. Just listen to Jesus. Worship Jesus. Listen to him. Don't put Jesus on par with any prophet or any preacher. Jesus stands alone. And so these these timely affirmations of Jesus from God the Father in an audible voice would have brought encouragement to our Lord to keep him going. Encouragement at the beginning of his ministry. Encouragement in the middle of his ministry. And now we have encouragement here at the end of his ministry. Sometimes God provides miraculous protection. Sometimes God sends an angel. But here, God gives us his own voice. God is always interested in giving a word of assurance to those who willingly suffer for his namesake. The affirmation from the Father was done in the presence of others so there would be no doubt that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the anointed one, the Son of God. And what does this voice from heaven say? Your next blank, God reminds us of his truth. Verse 28, he says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. God is saying that he has been glorifying his name throughout Christ's life and his ministry, and he will glorify it again through Jesus' death and his resurrection. God had glorified himself through the 30 silent years in Nazareth. God had glorified himself through the three years of Jesus' public ministry, and now he will glorify himself in the three days of the crucifixion and the resurrection. Here's what we're learning. God's always on the move. He's always at work, and that's what He's called us to do: is just to always be working for the glory of God. It's like what Jesus says in John five, 5 John five seventeen My Father is working until now, and I am working. And so God glorified his name in sending Jesus into the world to fulfill the new covenant. God glorified his name in saving Jesus from King Herod. God glorified his name when Jesus was blessed by Simeon at the temple, affirming that Jesus was a light for the Gentiles. God glorified his name in all of Jesus' miracles. God glorified his name in all of Jesus' teaching. God glorified his name in all of Jesus' struggles. God glorified his name in sending Jesus to seek and save the lost. God glorified his name in Jesus giving his life as a ransom for many. The truth is God has glorified his name throughout the life and ministry of Jesus. And God will glorify his name again at the crucifixion and resurrection. When Jesus would atone for the sins of those who would repent and believe. Again, this is all reminding us that God is always at work. It's not as if he begin something. He's already been doing it from eternity past. It's just now coming into picture and into play in your life. God is at work in your life on the good days, and God is at work in your life on the bad days, and you got to see everything that happens as being from the good and sovereign hand of the Lord, and we need to be asking God to, to, to help us glorify him in the midst of our difficult situation, no matter what's going on. Just a couple of weeks ago, my boys were playing basketball. And they had their first game of the season. And we got shut out, 22 to zip. Ouch. How do you get shut out in a basketball game? So As soon as the game was over, I grabbed two of my boys, put them in my car. Lisa and I had come from different angles, so she's got the rest of the kids. I got these two boys who are playing on the team. We get on the beautiful five freeway on one of those rainy afternoons when the grapevine was shut down. And we sit after getting beat 22 to Z, we sit on the freeway for an hour, moving like all of five inches. And during that time, my boys are like, I hate basketball. I quit. You know, that was awful. Coach should have moved us from man to man to zone. You know, they're just in all this stuff. And I'm like, hey, boys, I hear what you're saying. And that was painful to watch. <laughs> <laughs> but what do you think God thinks about this trouble. I mean, that was a troublesome time. I'm, I'm with you, my heart goes out to you. That was a difficult game, but what do you think God thinks about this? My kids are like, what, what do you mean? Like God doesn't really care so much about the score as he cares about your hearts in this moment, learning that even in a in a, in a worldly trial, it's not like God you know cares about sports, right? But he cares about our attitude and he wants you as a young man to look to God and say, you know what? God, my heart is troubled right now. For you, it could be something much more important than a basketball game. It could be your job. It could be your marriage. And you're like, I'm just troubled right now. And in that moment is when we've got to come and say, God, what are you teaching me? How is it that my faith can be strengthened? What is it that I, I can do in this moment to realize you're actually at work? Like, Lord, you're at work at this. This is not an accident. This is something that you're doing and you're bringing about. Lord, I want to join you where you're at work, glorifying your name by having the right attitude. And let me give you one more observation here about the voice of God. God reveals himself to those who worship him. God reveals himself. When, when you're not looking for God, you're not going to see him, but in the trouble, you start looking, he starts revealing, and he does it anyway, all the way through his word, right? But, but look what this crowd happened to them. Verse 29, the crowd that stood there heard it and said, it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Now, this verse simply said, the crowd heard it, Then they responded that either it had thundered or an angel had spoken to Jesus. What are we to think of this? Well, some commentators say here that they heard exactly what God said. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. But since the crowd was in denial, they explained it away as thunder or as an angel. Other commentators say that thunder was often associated with the voice of God in the Old Testament. Still other commentators say that God spoke to Jesus in an angelic language, and so those standing by could not understand it. You might remember a similar story when Jesus spoke to Saul in Acts 9, when Saul, before his conversion, was on the road to Damascus. He get thrown off his horse, and he says in Acts 9:7, the men who were traveling with him stood speechless hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Later, while giving his testimony, Paul describes it this way in Acts 22. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. Well, my thoughts on this are if spiritually blind people cannot see spiritual truth, then spiritually deaf people cannot hear spiritual truth. And so because these Jews had rejected Jesus and his teaching and his very words, they also have rejected the voice of God. It's not like they were following Jesus's voice. So when they hear God's voice, they reject that too. Maybe they couldn't understand it. But the reason is because their hearts had been hardened by their own sin. To say it simply, Christians hear the word of God and respond to it unbelievers do not. God reveals his word to Christians, but to unbelievers it is veiled. And Jesus teaches us the same truth in the parables when he says basically he spoke in parables to reveal the secrets of the kingdom of God to believers, but to hide these truths from unbelievers because they weren't listening anyway. And that's why it's so important Hebrews 3.15, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. The The writer of Hebrews is saying, look, you remember when the Israelites were rebelling against God's voice from Moses and in the wilderness and everything else that was supposed to be happening? Don't be like that. When you hear the voice of God today speaking through his word with crystal clear clarity, then you need to listen and respond to that work of God in your heart and in your life. It might be through a sermon or it might be through a song. God's voice is only in Scripture, but those things could be helping you see with more clarity and understanding what it is that God's saying. And so if God's speaking you today through His Word, listen up. Don't make excuses. Don't explain God's voice away. Open your heart to Him. Ask Him to help you understand and obey Him in faith and in sincerity. The third heading I want to give you this morning is the teaching of Jesus. And here in verse 30, we see a divine explanation. A divine explanation. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now, at first glance, this explanation from Jesus can be a bit puzzling. Didn't Jesus just ask for God to glorify his name and then God says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again? How could Jesus say that this voice was not for his sake. Well, after digging into this a little bit earlier this week, I think the best answer is this, Jesus is communicating that God's voice did not come exclusively for his sake, but that it also came for the sake of his listeners. Jesus did not need to hear God's voice to know that God was being glorified in all of this, Surely it would have been encouraging to his humanity, but that was not necessary for him to understand the will of God because in his divinity, he knew exactly what was happening. And even though the bystanders did not fully understand or comprehend the words that were spoken, either from their denial or lack of spiritual discernment, they would have had to admit that something supernatural happened in response to Jesus' prayer. God's voice, whether they could grasp it fully or not, still conveyed a divine affirmation of the Son. After Jesus gives an explanation of God's voice, he then gives a divine judgment your next blank, a divine judgment, this is really interesting, look at verse 31, this is not what I would have expected to come out of Jesus's mouth next, but he says this, he says, now is the judgment of this world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out, now that's really encouraging for a lot of reasons, one is Jesus is about to go to the cross, and in our humanity, we're starting to feel like, oh man, they're starting to gang up on Jesus, they're about, Judas is about to betray him, we know how this story ends, he's going to go to the garden, a bunch of Roman soldiers are going to come in, and they're going to nail him to a cross, and something from our humanity, when we read the story, we're still like, oh no, like, don't let this happen, like, how could they do this to him, he's so beautiful, and he's so majestic, and he's a lamb, and he's innocent, and he's pure, how in the world could this cross be coming, and yet Jesus says, hey, fear not, because on the cross, I'm about to pronounce judgment. The word judgment is the word crisis in the original. How true it is that the cross brings about a crisis. This crisis is not for Christians, but it's for unbelievers. For Christians, the cross brings about hope and redemption. But for the world, the cross brings about judgment. The word judgment means condemnation. And at the cross, the world will be condemned. And there is a sentence that follows. The world's apparent victory over Christ at the cross, in reality, led to its own judgment. The doom of unbelievers and the unbelieving world is sealed by this rejection of Jesus Christ. And so it's on the cross that Jesus is going to pronounce judgment. Jesus had already said earlier in John 5, for the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. John 5, 27, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. John 9, 39, Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Not only will Jesus be the judge of the world, but he will also cast out the ruler of this world. And we know this is a reference to Satan because Jesus refers to Satan with that same language in John 14, 30. Jesus says, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me. And again, in John 16, 11, the ruler of this world is judged. So to put it all together, Jesus is saying here in John 12, 31 that this worldly ruler the devil will be cast out. The devil has been after Jesus for a long time, starting with the proto-euangelion of Genesis 3.15, when it says that Satan will try to bruise his hill, but Christ will crush his head. It was the devil who was at work in King Herod to have Jesus killed as a baby. In Luke 22.3, it says that Satan entered into Judas to have him betray Jesus. And now we know that on the cross, the devil is defeated. Not that the devil won. You might be thinking the devil's been chasing Jesus, and he's been chasing Jesus, and he's been chasing Jesus, and he finally caught him. In his own deception, that may be very well what the devil was thinking. But because of the conquering power of the cross, Satan, in that very act, will be cast out. Satan is fighting a losing battle. And it gets worse for him. As we're told, the gates of hell will not prevail and that this ruler of the world is going to be cast out. We read more about it in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, when it is said to Satan, who's the accuser of the brethren, that he will be thrown down. Revelation 20. One through three says, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and he threw him into a pit, and and he shut it, and it sealed over him, so that he may not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended, and then he must be released for a little while, Finally. The end of the millennium, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire where he will be punished for all eternity, Revelation 20, verse 10. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now listen, I don't mean to get charismatic on you, but the devil is on his way to hell. He will spend all eternity there forever and ever. And this whole event was crystallized in Christocentric theology on the cross. It's on the cross. He's like, hey, the hours come for the Son of man to be glorified, but the hours also come for judgment. And in this hour, when I go to the cross, it's when Satan will be judged once and forever. He is doomed forever. The ruler of this world will be confined in that lake of fire and sulfur and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Uh, do you know what this means? This means Jesus has won. This means that on the cross, he did not lose, he won. This means that on the cross, Jesus was not defeated. He defeated death, and he defeated the grave, and he defeated our sin, and he defeated Satan forever. Satan was never in control of the cross. God was always in control of the cross. God planned the cross. God was pleased to crush his son on the cross. God was glorified in the crucifixion because God was also about to bring in the resurrection. And that's why we boast in the cross. And that's why it's the symbol of Christianity. And that's why we preach the cross. And that's why Paul said in Galatians 6, 14, may I never boast except in the cross. It's a symbol of victory, not defeat. And how can this encourage us today? This ought to remind us that you are not fighting a losing battle. You are fighting a winning battle. Sin's not going to get the best of you. Grace is going to grow you. Sin will not be your master, for you are under the commander-in-chief, the Lord Jesus and that ought to just give you hope. Like, oh, on the cross, Satan's been judged. The world has been judged. And I've been saved that through the cross, sin's penalty has been revoked. That through the cross, sin's power has been broken. So, what is it that you're struggling with today? Is it pride or selfishness or materialism or lust or drunkenness or adultery? or anger, or bitterness, or fear, or anxiety. Confess your sin to God, and he will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. James 4, 7. So what we're seeing here is this unbelievable reminder that when Jesus is lifted up, he will draw all men to himself. I'm going to have to share more on that next time, but for this day, I'm calling you to Christ. On this very day, I'm calling you out of darkness and out of your sin, and I'm calling you to Christ, and I'm saying Christ has cast out the devil. He has no hold on you. If you're here today and you're not a believer, I'm calling you to surrender your life to Jesus Christ. I'm telling you it's about heaven or hell and it's a cross that makes the difference. And if this day you don't know where to go and your troubles are a mess, the only way to get through your troubles is to look at the triumph of the cross. And I'm pleading with you on this day that you would abandon your sin and that you would abandon all of your unknown questions. And you're just like, I'm just gonna come to Jesus. I know he died on a cross, and I know the Father in heaven affirmed that that was his son. I'm coming to Christ. I bid you come this day. If you're here today and you are a believer and your heart's still troubled, then let me remind you of this beautiful prayer, that God, in the midst of my trouble, I just want you to be glorified. I don't need more medication. I don't need a psychologist. I don't need a drink. I don't need more money. I don't even need a vacation, though it's nice to take those. What I need is Jesus. That's what I need. If my heart's troubled, I need Jesus. I need to understand him and understand his word, understand that my trouble has a purpose, and it's for this very purpose that I've come to this hour. And in this hour, my prayer will be, Father, glorify your name. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity today to just be reminded of some of these truths, Lord. Some of our work here in this passage is still to be done, but we're just so thankful for this, this transparent view of the Lord Jesus Christ who also was troubled. We pray, God, that as we look at his prayer and as we hear that voice from heaven and as we pray, along with Jesus, Father, glorify your name, that that would be what helps put us in the right perspective to understand the right purpose. It's all about you, Lord. It's all about your name. Forgive us, God, for thinking somehow that we can be a judge of the universe. Forgive us for somehow thinking that we know what's best and what you should have done and how it should be done in our life. And we confess all that pride today, and we just ask for you to shine your light through your word in our hearts. Encourage those of us who are troubled this morning. God, whatever we're going through, help us to find that the triumph is in the cross and in the victory that we have in Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.